Good evening, everyone. Hi. Thank you very much for coming. Welcome to our event this evening. Um, my name is Morris. I'm one of the leaders here at Christchurch Liverpool, which is the church that meets in this building every Sunday. And we're very glad that you've joined us for our Big Issues series. One of the things we're very aware of as a church is that something that puts a lot of people off faith is that they think their questions can't be answered. You just have to box off your questions and take a leap in the dark. And that's not what we believe here in this church. We believe that the Christian faith makes more sense of the world rather than less sense of it. And so we're doing this uh, series we're calling Big Issues, looking at barriers to faith. And tonight we're thinking about science. Just to explain what will happen, our speakers, who I'll introduce in a second, will speak for about 45 minutes. Then we'll have a break where you can go and grab tea and coffee and something nice to eat for four or five minutes. Just stretch your legs, go to the loo if you need to anything like that, and then we'll come back and have questions and answers. You'll see on the slide, just behind the speakers there, there's a phone number. If you feel like you're going to be shy to ask questions at any point during the Q&A, that's totally fine. Just text a question into that number. It will, just, it will only go to the back of the room. It won't go anywhere else. And um, it will be noted down and then given to the speakers during the Q&A time. Just to um, introduce our uh, speakers this evening, both people who've been part of this church, you may know one or both of them. Dr. John Taylor is a physicist. He's the Senior Research Fellow in Physics at the University of Liverpool. And Dr. Lindsay Ferguson is a geologist, formerly an academic uh, in earth sciences at the University of Liverpool, and then a consultant geologist. And Lindsay also studied for a degree in Christian leadership and now works for us here at Christchurch Liverpool. So we're very glad that they've prepared and have them with us, and it'd be great if you could welcome them. Thank you. So, John, you are a research fellow in physics. What does that mean? What do you do, John? Okay, uh, this on. Okay, so my job doesn't involve any teaching at all. Uh, Well, not lectures as such. I might do some tutorials. So I'm purely research, and uh, I work for the physics department in Liverpool University, and specifically the high-energy physics groups. That's particle physics. And before that, I work for the nuclear physics group. And the section that I work in is um, the detector R&D group. So I'll just illustrate with a a few slides. So, uh, So one of the experiments that the particle physics group is involved in is the Large Hadron Collider at CERN. And uh, we do a couple of things there. So we build the detectors that are used in several of the major experiments, but then we also uh, do the analysis of the data that comes out there. So uh, the LHC, if you don't know, is a a massive particle accelerator. In fact, it's the biggest one in the world. And it sits underneath the French-Swiss border. Um, So you fly to Geneva and you do your experiments at various places on the rings. It's probably not really legible. I'm sorry about that. But basically, the, the experiments are all underground. And uh, you you get to them from the top here. And it's a 27-kilometer tunnel all the way around. So we have very, very high-energy beams of protons that collide in opposite directions. And then you get reactions that are formed. And you can look at what happens in those those reactions and try to measure what happened at the very start of the universe is is the main goal. And, uh, of course, the thing that that CERN is most well-known for is the discovery of the Higgs boson, which uh, is part of the Higgs field that gives everything mass. So that was what... Primarily, the accelerator was built to measure. It's also measured many other things along the way. Um, but that is uh, its main triumph at the moment. And scientists at the moment, it's on. People are analyzing data, and they're trying to look for other things that they might find 
Uh, and the other thing that we do that's also part of my job is to, to try to take the technology that's been developed at CERN. Uh, some of it has never ever been uh, made anywhere before in any other field of engineering or science and then try to apply that to different problems across society. So uh, the one that I'm involved with is uh, particle physics uh, detectors being used to help uh, treat cancer. So specifically, uh, again, sorry, it's a little bit small, but uh, there are brand new particle accelerators coming to the UK, uh, funded by the NHS and also privately, to uh, treat cancer in something called proton therapy. And so it turns out that actually a lot of the technology developed at CERN can be used to enhance that and make it safer and more accurate and so that's the other strand of my job. So mostly detector building and instrumentation, um, but also applications to, to real-world problems as well. Now, uh, Lindsay, I've only known you for about a week, uh, so <laughs> you've told me a little bit about what you did uh, as, as, as an academic on staff at Liverpool and then also uh, what you're doing now. So can you just explain to everybody here, a lot of people will know you, but some probably won't how that happened, how you started off, and what made you go into Christian ministry? Um, well, I did my doctorate in Glasgow, and then I moved to take up my post at Liverpool University uh, after that, and uh, loved teaching, and I've taught at a number of different uh, levels in geology. Um, I later got a post in Western Australia as a consultant for the minerals, and minerals industry. So I moved to Australia to take up that post um, working uh, mostly in the, in the industry for gold. So I was involved in production, uh, working for different mining companies as a consultant in production, but also in exploration for gold and making maps, um, treasure maps, as I tell my nephew, um, looking for targeting for gold and working out structural geology in Western Australia, but also across Central Africa for African mining companies and West Africa, um, and did a, a little tiny bit in Pacific Islands as well. Um, now, John's told you about his nice, clean world where he operates as a scientist. Um, here's just one or two pictures of my world. So you'll just see that uh, he might find particles. We find gold. So um, how's that for a nugget? Look at this guy's biceps. It's so heavy. Um, and this is one of the, as we call in the industry, the old-timers. And this is their operating facility here. But uh, this is a bit more of what it's like in my world. So this is more the kind of mining that we did, that, that I was involved in, this kind of open pit mining in Western Australia when I was doing production. And uh, this is the kind of sophisticated uh, mills that basically get the gold out of the rock nowadays. So that's basically uh, a bit of my uh, scientific background. Um, yeah. Okay, so as a geologist, what do uh, the modes or the methods of, of discovery look like if you're working in geology? Well, geology is a science, and we work um, on a certain platform, which is underpinned by certain beliefs or presuppositions. So the key thing in geology is what is known as the principle of uniformitarianism. And that is basically an assumption that the rate of change of events that occur today, we can project into the past, and so the rate of change in the past is the same as today. But that's an assumption. And one thing I have to say is we look very little in teaching on university level 
at those assumptions that we base our science on. In fact, more importantly, there is actually almost no teaching uh, on philosophy of science at undergraduate level, in my experience. Now, I have studied and taught at four different institutions, three of which are Russell Group uh, universities, and they just do not teach you philosophy of science. So they don't really teach you to critique the things that, that the science is, is based on. In fact, I learned more about that at Bible college than at a university. And then they give me a doctorate in philosophy, which is actually hilarious, because we didn't do any philosophy, a doctorate in modernistic thinking, perhaps. So that's, that's kind of the, the, the playing field that, that we operate um, in, the, in the assumptions that, that we have. Within that... Geology is a science that actually requires an awful lot of humility. Um, we can't get data as quickly as they can sometimes in physics. You know, volcanoes just don't erupt as often as we'd like them to, perhaps. But the thing is, in, in geology, we can tell most about the things that are occurring now. When we go into the past history, it's more difficult to be too confident in exactly the conditions of the past. And when we look at the earliest rocks, when the world was actually in a radically different shape and structure than it is now, we have to be very, very careful. So we are confident in the truth of the rock. It's there. But even as scientists, there's a lot of uncertainty in our interpretation, and we hold it very lightly and aren't so dogmatic about it. Geology uses a lot of the more absolute sciences like physics and chemistry and works within those to try and answer puzzles. Now, actually, this is exceptionally like how we do being Christians. In Christianity, humility is a core thing that's expected of Jesus. The New Testament, we can be most confident in our interpretation of. Back in the Old Testament, there was it's further removed in time. So we just have to be a little bit more careful because a lot of cultures and so forth were different. But way back in the earliest of times, in what we know as prehistory in Genesis 1 to 11, again, the world was a very different place then. People lived a lot longer than they do now, for example. So we have to be very careful. We, again, we believe in the truth of it, but we're less dogmatic in our interpretation of that truth. So it's amazing how similar the thought processes are. In fact, even we work with absolutes and look at thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, etc. But every day we're faced with different decisions and we have to have wisdom in those. So geology actually and ministry are, and Christian life are very, very similar in their approaches. So John, what about scientific discovery in physics? Okay, um Similarities, of course, but uh, so physics has now been studied for quite a long time, and so it's a very broad topic. You've got stuff over, you know, more towards engineering, uh, which obviously uses a lot of physics, and then you've got stuff that's more abstract and mathematical. And what you you find in in the different fields of physics is that they all have this twin focus. So you've got people who are called theorists who are doing the mathematics, uh, the the, you know formulating theories that, that can then go and be proved or disproved by the experimentalists. Um, and so the theory is more towards maths, and what you find with, with mathematics, if any of you study it here or have studied this as part of your education, you'll know that 
Uh, proof there comes quite quickly. You can basically take a piece of paper and write out the steps for an equation and you can prove it on the back of an envelope, as people often say. Um, but proof in, in other areas of physics comes uh, with less certainty than that. So, um, I mean, of course, there's some things that you can measure straight away in the lab and you can see them in front of you. But there are, there are plenty of fields of physics uh, that tend to be uh, ones that are looking further back in time, as Lindsay said, things like cosmology, uh, where we, we don't know things with as great a degree of certainty because often we're looking at events that were complete one-offs, events that we can't technically repeat in the lab. We can try to construct scenarios that are similar to that. That's what the LHC tries to do when it says it's a tunnel back to time to looking at the Big Bang. But they can't, of course, recreate the Big Bang because that has happened only once and will happen only once. So it's important to have humility. It's important to think about which particular area within the discipline you're doing uh, and to ascribe the appropriate amount of certainty uh, just to realize, I think, that uh, we can't know all truths with equal certainty. And of course, that, that's true of, of everyday life, isn't it? But uh, you see that across, across the board in, in physics as well, mm. in the various different, different parts. Mm. Okay, my next question to you then is... I've got is, one for you, though. Oh, really? Why do you think the oh, relationship <laughs> between... Why do you think the relationship between science and Christianity is important? Ah, yes, okay, sorry. Uh, we did look at these beforehand, sorry. I'm not, I'm reading <laughs> Um, I often say to people, I think it's a little bit provocative perhaps, but uh, Christians have more reasons to do science than anybody else. Uh, by that, I do not mean that if you aren't a Christian, you can't do it. I just mean that uh, there are commands given to Christians. There is uh, in the Bible that we are to fill the world and subdue it. And in fact, you could say that command is given to all of mankind. Um, and it's easy to see how science does that, I think. You can see how uh, as we develop the laws of science, we measure things, and we, we develop technology and so on, you can see how we become more in control of our own lives, more in control of the world around us, how we manage to uh, get better at uh, diagnosing and treating diseases, uh, you know, all the, all the technology that makes our lives easier, that helps us, you know, do our jobs more quickly and so on. Uh, and so I think that part of uh, doing science is completing that, that command to fill the world uh, and subdue it, and also to be... Um, sometimes Christians use this word stewardship, which just means care t you know, being like a caretaker, looking after the world that God has given us. I think science is, as, um, you know, of course, technology is often used to destroy the environment, but the truth is uh, it doesn't have to be used like that, and there are many occasions uh, you know, where science can be used to help us care for the world around us as well as uh, to subdue it. And, um, yeah, I think that's all I want to say. Where are we, sorry? Yeah. You're going to ask me about this one. Right, sorry. <laughs> I printed this in black and white and I can't, I can't see my... Uh... Okay. And just finally to close, I actually thought of a quote when, when we were looking at this question, is that there is a, there's an astrophysicist called Kepler who lived many hundreds of years ago and he, he put it really uh, well, I think, when he said that to do science is to think God's thoughts after him to look into the world and to see what God has made and, and to see, isn't it wonderful? And then to take that, uh, to take those treasures that you've discovered and then put them on display for everybody to see. And I think that's a, a really uh, lovely way of thinking about the scientific method. Uh, he was, of course, a Christian and one of the founding fathers of science and, uh, you know, well worth reading some of the things that he said. Okay, uh, my question to you then is, Morris alluded to it at the start, a lot of people... 
uh, think, don't they, that uh, science and Christianity are incompatible, that there's some sort of conflict there. Uh, and so then either you have to sort of ignore that conflict if you're going to believe both, or perhaps uh, you just stop believing anything at all. So what do you think about that? Yeah, well, this is the big deal, isn't it? It's been such a big deal in recent years, this concern. Albert Einstein stated that scientists investigate that which already is, and engineers create that which has never been. Now, that statement was obviously meant to flatter the engineer, but let's look a little bit carefully at what uh, Einstein said about science. So he said, science investigates that which already is. So the scientific method is actually a method of observation. And then after observation, there's measurement by experiment to determine if that observation is repeatable. Then, after it's seen to be repeatable, a working proposal or hypothesis is formed and tested, which in due course, after enough testing and enough critique and confirming and so forth, will lead to a theory. So that's the scientific method. Now let me give you an example of that in operation. So Sir Isaac Newton, often considered to be the greatest ever scientist, is sitting under a tree one day, an apple tree, and an apple falls. So this is my apple, it falls, it drops. He thinks, hmm. So he picks it up and drops it again, and drops it again. He observes it and then tests to see if it's repeatable, and lo and behold, the apple falls again. And so he develops a working proposal about what he thinks is going on, his hypothesis. Now, all of this is pursuing how that apple, or in my case, a pen, behaves when it's released above the earth. Now, it took uh, Sir Isaac Newton a further 20 years to develop his final theory of gravitation. But whilst this further work was more sophisticated, it was still investigating how the apple or the pen or anything else falls, how different bodies, whether it be individual objects or planets, interrelate. It was all still pursuing this further question, how? Now, Arthur Holmes, who's a great daddy and geologist, said the following. He said, how, basically, he said, how leads to the very root of most natural problems. The scientific worker, except when he is dealing with human nature and perhaps with some types of animal behavior, never asks the question, why, in the strict sense of implying purpose. It is quite useless to ask why a volcano erupts because there is no possible means of answering that question. So why, he says, notice this, always implies a further question, who? So let's go back to my experiment. How does the pen fall? Gravity. Why does it fall? Because I, Lindsay, who drops it. So much of the problem has raged in the world of science against Christianity 
in this whole Genesis 1 account. So we're going to have a quick look at this. Genesis 1 account is basically, it starts off, in the beginning, God created. And then it says, and then God said, let, and then God said, let. Fifty times in that first account of the creation of the world, fifty times God's name, or a pronoun thereof, is mentioned. God is the subject of Genesis chapter 1. So whatever Genesis 1 is saying or not saying about the age of the earth, the chief subject of Genesis chapter 1 is who created. Now, the Bible teaches that after, I don't know if you can read all that, the Bible teaches that basically after God created everything and everything was good, people decided, hmm, no thanks. They decided to reject God, the one of love, and go their own way. And so selfishness, self-centeredness, deceit, covetousness, anger, bitterness, rage, violence, war, etc., all entered this world because people basically decided to go their own way. That's the story of the Bible. And then the rest of the Bible, up until the very end, So this whole center bit here is basically about God bringing hope into this brokenness, primarily and ultimately in the person of Jesus Christ, who brings us ultimate freedom and ultimate hope. And in the very last two chapters of the Bible, over here, there is the new creation when it's all sorted again. So you've got the creation when it's perfect, you've got the new creation, and then the rest of it is God sorting out that mess. So basically, the Bible is about who created, who rescues people in this human-made mess, who we worship, and what God and people have done. And our why questions that we have lead us to who, as Holmes said, So science is about how. It's the mechanistic questions. The Bible and faith is about who related to our why questions. Quite simply, science and Christianity are dealing with different questions. Now, I'm going to mention Richard Dawkins' name, even though he's a little bit passe nowadays, (laughs) our famous atheist scientist. He actually agrees with this, by the way. He doesn't disagree, of course not, because it's the case. But he, what he does, get this, I'm, I'm biased, but he says he questions the validity of the question why. Well, I've taught you all to be scientists now, so let's just have a look. Let's observe the human being. In this audience, a lot of you have got kids, all of you have been children. Isn't there a pestilential time in children's lives, about the age of three to six, where they don't stop asking the question, why? Nobody's taught them, they just do. So a mum says, come in for your tea. And the child says, why? And the mother says, because your father's good at meeting tonight. And the child says, why? <laughs> because he has to earn a wage. Why? And it just goes on and on. And eventually, the mother just, before they get to the end point of that, the mother just says, kick all that, I say so. We've all experienced that. Then people generally don't ask it. 
But then if you lose a child or you get some diagnosis and death comes in suddenly unexpected, people ask the question, why then? Suddenly they're screaming that question. So as I observe the human being, Professor Dawkins, it asks the question, why? It is indeed a real question that the human being asks. The sad fact of the matter, though, is that people haven't realized they deal with different questions. And so there have been big fights. But you know what? As a little addition, not only does science and Christianity not ask the same question, but science never intended to deal with all our questions. Way back in the early days of scientific endeavor, Galileo basically declared that mathematics was indeed the language of natural science. But he recognized that mathematical vocabulary could never capture the complete nature of this world. The sensory qualities, smell, taste, hot, spicy, that's interpretive because what's hot to me might not be hot to you. These, however, he called issues of the soul, these interpretive things. The mathematical language, however, has quantitative attributes, and mathematics gave birth to mathematical physics. So quantitative issues was science, but the other sensory things was out with the domain of natural science. So part of reality but part of reality not within the scope of science. So I just want you to think about today. Do you know what? We have so many pop people, pop music, croning away about love, croning away about brokenness and pain and hurt. It's on all our radio stations. Saturday night TV, they're all crying on X Factor. Listen, they're all thinking that science answers their questions. It doesn't intend to. And they look to science to answer questions that it can't. And they don't look at the Bible. They've rejected the Bible. They don't think about that. So they don't know about a God of love. They don't know where to go. They've lost their moral compass. And I think we'd all recognize the brokenness of this world. Isn't that what we see? And it's so sad because they're totally compatible. They're just answering different questions. So John, if this is the case, why in your experience are so few scientists Christians? Uh, in my experience, it's and I think talking to other people, this is other Christians in science, that, that is, it's, it's sort of a universal experience. We'll see what you, you think as well, Lindsay, but um, it's ironic, really. It's because they don't look at the evidence. I mean, that's what scientists are supposed to do. But actually, so many of the conversations that I have and so many of the things that I read online, uh, people attack Christianity in, in a guise that I don't recognize. They, they, I don't recognize the God or uh, the Jesus that they're talking about. It's, it's a complete uh, straw man argument. And so I think, in the end... Um, Scientists are just the same as everybody else, right? They, they're not Christians because they don't know the gospel. They're not Christians because they don't go away and look at the evidence for themselves and think about 
uh, whether this could really be true. They're going to investigate the claims of Jesus, his life, his death, and his resurrection, and ask themselves the honest question whether this could really have happened in history. And so, um, yeah, through talking to people, that's generally what I find. Yeah. Uh, of course, sometimes you do find exceptions, people who have looked into it. Um, and I think you've got some, some good examples of that, actually. Yeah, it's, this is um, a quote from a chap called Josh McDowell. Josh McDowell's done an awful lot of research across university campuses in his time. And his contention is that most scientists are not Christians for the same reason that most non-scientists are not Christians. They have not heard the gospel. They've not heard the good news message of God's love for them in Jesus Christ. Now, this is um, certainly the case uh, in my experience. Most it's true. Most of my scientific colleagues um, have not been uh, Christians. Um, But I can think of three scientists uh, in particular, all of which the three I'm thinking of are leaders in their field. Um, By the way, you won't find them at Liverpool University, so I'm kind of safe here. But the three I'm thinking of are all Oxbridge and... um, Having heard the gospel, um, one person who's worked with NASA on lunar samples, Cambridge doctorate, um, he said, after hearing the gospel, he said, you've given me stuff to think about that I have never heard about before. He didn't go away. He hadn't been away and uh, researched it all and rejected it. He'd never heard of it. Another scientist leader in his field, um, when sharing the gospel, his chin started going. You know when you're kind of holding back tears, you don't want the tears to flow, proper tears? The chin, the chin was going. That was what happened to him when he heard the message of Jesus Christ. And a third one to share of, he, you know, he's Oxbridge, uh, Oxford, uh, Cornell, Cambridge, um, put the scares amongst uh, Britain's leading geophysicists. Um, he said that the most important question that he will ever deal with as this leading geophysicist is what to do with Jesus Christ. Now, if you saw his stuff, he's still not a Christian today. But I have occasionally teased him and he says, ah, you know me, Lindsay. I'm stubborn. None of these people knew the gospel and rejected it. They didn't know. They were all deeply moved and even with great scientific mind conceded the most important question is Jesus Christ. Lots of food for thought there. Now I'm going to give the stage over to John. He's going to give us a little bit more information uh, on the philosophy of science and Jesus. So I'll pass over to him and then we'll have coffee and then we will deal with questions after that. Okay, thanks, Lindsay. Okay, yeah, so there will be questions at the end, so if you have... uh, If you vehemently disagree with what I say, that's absolutely fine. Um, But please try and uh, hold it in until the very end, otherwise I'll probably lose my place when you shout out. I don't know if you've seen uh, the film that I'm putting a picture of up on the screen. Um, I watched it this week for the first time, been meaning to for quite a while. 
And uh, the film is called The Theory of Everything, and it's about the life of cosmologist Stephen Hawking um, and his life living with MS and also his discoveries, his, and particularly the relationship between himself and his wife, who is a Christian, and he, he is an atheist. And at the very start of the film, there's this... Um, this rather touching uh, exchange between them as they meet for the first time as students uh, at Cambridge. And it goes a little bit like this. Jane, what do you do? I'm a cosmologist. What's that? It's a kind of religion for intelligent atheists. Intelligent atheists? What do you worship then? What do we worship? One single unifying equation that explains everything. Really? What's the equation? Ah, well that's the question. And I intend to find out. And so begins the rest of the film. Very good film, award winning, as I said, worth a watch. But uh, this is a very provocative exchange. And also quite revealing. It reveals a lot not just about what Stephen Hawking believes, but also what many people today believe science can offer and think it capable of doing. Now, personally, I hope to live uh, to see the discovery that Hawking describes, an equation that unites the four fundamental forces in nature, gravity, the electromagnetic force, the weak force, and the strong force, a so-called Grand Unified Theory, or GUT, or a TOW, the theory of everything. But if such a thing is discovered, should we expect it to explain everything? Every aspect of existence? I don't think so. But it seems that many, many people do hold to that idea. That in the end, science will be the salvation of all of us and, and of everything. Uh, there's an interesting quote from a well-known comedian called Dara Brian. I'm sure you know him. And people say to him, science can't explain everything. He says, well, of course not, otherwise it would stop. This idea that science will just roll on and on and on until eventually everything is explained. Or that quote that Lindsay alluded to from uh, Richard Dawkins where he says, people say, yeah, science can explain how but not why. And he says, well, the why question is just a silly question. But we know that it's a real question for all the reasons that Lindsay described, a real question asked by Jung and all the like. It's sort of saying what we don't know science will discover and what it can't discover, like why, just isn't worth bothering with. Now there is no doubt that the scientific project is enormously successful and long may it continue, but was it ever really meant to describe all of reality? It's perhaps instructive, uh, as as we did in the questions just now, to to think about the founding fathers of modern science. What do they actually set out to do? Quotes you've already heard, Kepler saying that actually to do science is to think God's thoughts after him, to open up nature for everybody to see, to show off how wonderful God is, how creative and how imaginative he is. That was why Christians like Kepler did their science. And Galileo, somebody who's so often quoted as being anti-Christian because he had this massive feud with the Roman Catholic Church, a feud that I think he was completely in the right about. Talk about that later if you want to. He says, the laws of nature are written by the hand of God in the language of mathematics. Galileo was a committed Christian. 
And so if we're all still involved in the same scientific project as the founding fathers of science, and I think that we are, why should we expect to be able to explain everything with science in the way that many suggest today? Well, this evening, I, I want to try and convince you of three things. I'll put them up now so you can see where we're going to go. The first is that science cannot explain everything that we see and experience as human beings. The second is that questions that science can't answer are still important questions that deserve an answer. And thirdly, that Christianity provides a foundation for the flourishing of science and provides real, credible answers to those questions that science was never intended to answer. So let's begin with that, that first point on the screen. Now, most of you probably already agree with this, that science can't explain everything. And, of course, we discussed this at length at the start, but I think it's worth going through anyway, just to... Because it is something that some people believe, and I'll give some quotes to show you that in a minute, but also because it helps us outline the limits of science, what it really is possible to know and what it isn't, using the scientific method. And so, for examples of some things that we can't know via science, just carry on listening, I will come to that soon. But I thought it might be instructive to begin with just to uh, go through an example of an experiment uh, from my own field uh, and just look exactly what happens, exactly how the scientific method is used uh, to elucidate the properties of reality. And this, if you find this boring, it's fine, switch off. You can have a nap for five minutes or something. But um, I'm just going to describe an experiment that took place nearly 100 years ago. And in general, what happens is a scientist observes some physical phenomena, and then you produce a theory to explain it. That's often mathematical in nature. And then you make a prediction based upon that new theory. And then you make some experiments, and, and you, you try and test those predictions. And once you've done that, the theory is either disproved, improved, or proved. And actually, the most certainty of all comes in science is when, you're, when your theory is disproved, because then you know it's absolutely not true. Actually, when it's proved or when it's improved, there could always be something else to add on. And so actually, a lot, a lot of the, if you talk to a lot of the guys who are doing the analysis of the data at, at CERN, they're not trying to prove physics. They will tell you that they are trying to break physics. They are trying to prove that the model that we have is inadequate and there is something else outside. Because then they get very excited and they've got to go and go off and look and try and work out what that might be. And so before the discovery of the Higgs boson, there were many uh, bets made in the department. Will we find it? Won't we find it? Will it really be there? Uh, and the results were embargoed until uh, a certain date when two experiments, Atlas and CMS, announced that result. Uh, and I didn't know what the answer would be, but I came into the department and saw a load of professors drinking champagne at nine in the morning, and then I knew that the news must be good news. But actually, a lot of people said then, I wish we hadn't found it. That would have been far more interesting. But that is the way science works. You find it or you don't find it, or you get a hint that you're in the right direction or not. Now, I'll just uh, go over this experiment. So James Chadwick... Sorry about this. Move that down slightly if it helps. James Chadwick, who you can see on the screen there, was a, a professor at the University of Liverpool. Uh, he really overhauled the physics department, actually, and made it, uh, set it on track for what it is today. And he got the Nobel Prize in 1935 for discovering a particle called the neutron. 
You may well have heard of it. It makes up the majority of atoms that we see around us, and so then most of the matter that we see around us too. And I put a, di- a diagram of his experiments on the screen, so um, maybe you can't read it so well from here. But So what he does is he, he takes a, a, an alpha source. This is the kind of thing that was used to kill Litvinenko, if you know about that. And he, uh, he bombarded a target made from beryllium, and he observed that some radiation was emitted that was uncharged and hard to measure. And so what he did was he put a converter here, just some paraffin. That then produced charged particles called protons, and then he was able to detect them. So he proposed the neutrons a hypothesis, and then he went on to measure its mass. And from there, he was able to alter nuclear theory with the discovery that paved the way for fission. Nuclear fission, the discovery that is used in, many nuclear, in all nuclear power plants today. So he observed something, made a hypothesis, did an experiment, and improved scientific theory as a result. And then many useful applications were derived. Now I hope it's clear from that example alone that science is really brilliant at discovering and explaining things in natural terms. And we didn't really need that example, did we? Because we all know that already. It's why we have bigger and more powerful computers and mobile phones. Better knowledge of our planet and the world around us. Better techniques for curing and preventing illness and disease. We know that science is inextricably linked to our development as a species. And this, then, you can see then why this leads people to think, is there nothing science can't do? Is there no question it cannot answer? Let me illustrate this with a quote from uh, Peter Atkins. He's a, a, quite an eminent uh, chemistry professor. And he puts it uh, like this. There is no reason to suppose that science cannot deal with every aspect of existence. Only the religious, among whom I include not only the prejudiced, but the underinformed, hope there is a dark corner of the physical universe or of the universe of experience that science can never hope to illuminate. Atkins really believes that science has the power to explain every aspect of existence, he says. But ask yourself, is this really true? Are religious people always prejudiced and under-informed more than non-religious people? Is it really possible that people who reject any kind of religious perspective can enter into this sort of neutral state where they do their science without any bias whatsoever? Well, I don't think so. And the problem with this idea that science is all explaining, that one day it will explain everything is that it's a principle that refutes itself. So just consider the statement that Atkins makes again. There is no reason to suppose that science cannot deal with every aspect of existence. And ask yourself, is this statement itself scientifically provable? Can you think of an experiment to test it? You see, the position is incoherent and self-refuting. It's like sitting on the branch of a tree, taking a saw and sawing the branch off at the same time. The claim that everything is explicable in terms of science is not itself provable by science. And so science cannot explain everything. Let's move on to the the second thing that I I wanted to discuss tonight. Questions that science can't answer, rather, are still important. Now, you might say, okay, I, you know, it's, it seems obvious that science can't explain everything. 
But it's, the, it's all we've got, isn't it? It's the best, the most reliable method of knowing anything. But we need to ask ourselves, do we really believe that? And could we live like it's true? Or maybe you still think like Richard Dawkins, you know, okay, science can't explain everything, but what it can't explain isn't really worth worrying about. It isn't such a big deal. But can we live like that's true? Well, I don't think so. Science has its limits. And knowledge of things that lie beyond those limits is critically important to all of us. So what are those limits? I've put a short list upon the screen. I'll talk through them. It's important to remember that science, by definition, studies only what is natural. But contrary to the quote that I gave by Peter Atkins, science cannot deal with every aspect of human existence. For some things, the scientific explanation is the best possible one. For others, it's merely just a a valid point of view, among others, and for some things, it's completely inadequate. Let me give you uh, those examples on the screen explained. Firstly, science tells us how things are, but not why. And Lindsay's mentioned this a lot already. Science cannot deal with questions of ultimate meaning and purpose. And you can see this when you just think about the simple questions that children can answer, which can ask rather, or that we still ask as adults when we grow up. Why is there something rather than nothing? Why am I here? What happens when I die? What should I do with my life? Science can tell us how, but it can't tell us why. Secondly, science is permeated with unprovable assumptions, things like the laws of maths and logic. So when you go to formulate your theory or do your experiments, you have to assume these principles in order to do the experiments. And if you try and use the experiment to prove those uh, laws of maths and logic, you're basically just reasoning in a circle. So we have to proceed assuming those things before we can carry out our science. Thirdly, science is amoral. It can't tell us what we ought to do. So there may be no example, no physical difference between the scientific procedure used to rearrange the atoms in a crystal or rearrange the atoms in my body using a grenade. But morally, there's a world of difference, isn't there? Talked a little bit earlier about Chadwick's discovery of the neutron. This is something that paved the way for studies of nuclear fission and nuclear power. And, some, and obviously we're all dependent upon energy in our lives. That is, that is a way of using scientific experimentation for good. But that also paved the way for the Manhattan Project, which made the first nuclear weapons that have caused untold pain and suffering. and something that we still live in the shadow of today. Exactly the same scientific process used for completely opposite reasons. Fourthly, science cannot make aesthetic or value judgments There's no experiment that could tell you the value of a human life or the beauty of a sunset. And fifthly, the scientific method is committed to building upon previous knowledge. If you've heard of peer review, you do your experiment, you write up your results, you put it in a paper, someone reviews it, send it back, some comments, you try and improve it, and eventually it gets published, and then somebody else cites your paper because they've built on it to do their research. Now, it's not normal to go away and try and repeat the experiment. You might do it sometimes, but... In the end, what you have is this tower of research that's built upon foundations that you assume. You assume it based on already published research upon papers which are essentially historical documents. But this commitment to the reality of the past is not something that science can ultimately prove. It just has to trust, to assume it.
And yet all these types of beliefs are things that affect our lives on a daily basis. We make decisions and choices based upon moral and aesthetic judgments all the time. Right, so what does that prove? Well, simply this, that there are ways of knowing things that we all trust that are outside the purview of science. In fact, when you think about it, most of the choices we make, most of the things that we think we really know on a daily basis are based on things like memory and trust and relationships, not upon scientific principles. Well, finally, I I want to convince you of that third thing I said at the start, that is Christianity is the best foundation for all of human knowledge, including science. Now, as I've said already, it's possible to simply treat these other ways of knowing as as if they don't matter. And lots of intelligent people do it. I'm just going to share a few few more quotes with you. Um, Two quotes here, one by Richard Feynman, who's a Nobel Prize winning physicist. You may have heard of him. He sat on the panel that reviewed uh, the evidence for uh, why the Challenger spacecraft uh, disaster happened, why it blew up um, as it took off. Um, So that's one of the things he's very well known for, but he was also a great father of modern physics, especially uh, quantum electrodynamics. Uh, And he says here, it's quite funny really, I suppose, he says that philosophy of science is as useful to scientists as ornithology is to birds. And in one sense he's right, you don't need to know the limits, the philosophy of science, in order to carry out experiments. You can learn the techniques and learn the tools and just carry on trying to do your measurements in the same way that a bird can fly without having to know all the ins and outs of flight and why it works, exactly when it will fail. But if you're someone who chooses not to see the limits of knowledge accessible by the scientific method, not to see the big picture, then it will make it impossible to justify any of the beliefs that we've just talked about, things that are a real part of being human, things that fall outside the remit of science, And the second quotation, I think, is even more telling by a geneticist called Richard Lewontin. And he says that materialism, that is the belief that everything around us is just material, there is nothing spiritual at all. He says that this is an absolute belief for him. He cannot allow the divine foot in the door. He cannot allow the possibility of a God. He won't even think about it. He has a prior commitment to materialism. But if you convince yourself that all that exists is the material world, then you commit yourself to the worldview of scientific naturalism. And this, not only does this reduce human beings to less than they really are, not only does it cut you off from all of those things we've discussed that aren't accessible to science, that we depend upon as human beings, I also don't really see any good reason to think that it's true. And I think this is, uh, it puts you in in a conundrum that I think was quite well illustrated by uh, the theologian Francis Schaeffer, you may have heard of him, picture him at the bottom there. And what he said was that what was happening to uh, modern thought was that it was like a house with two stories in it. And on the bottom, you've got, um, you've got a split, basically. You've got things like science and reason and data on the bottom. People think of them as facts. And then you've got religious views and moral views and uh, love and so on and memories and they're on the top floor. And he said it's as if it's a house. And people who take this view that, you know, science is the only way to really access truth, it's as if they've got this house and they've removed the staircase. 
But because they can't live like that's true, because they, they, they rely upon, because they're human beings like the rest of us, and so they, they do love and they do believe in relationships and they do want to have access to, they do make moral judgments and so on, value-based judgments, they make leaps up to this top floor. And so they're always leaping between the two. And what he proposed was um, the Christian worldview as a view that properly unites those two floors together, that unites facts and values. And so, to put it that way, we need a worldview that, that doesn't get rid of the staircase. We need something that connects who we are as human beings with the world and nature around us. We need something that helps us manage what comes to us via the scientific method, but what also comes to us via all our other faculties as well. And so these examples of things I gave that science can't prove was, was intended to show us that there is knowledge, real human knowledge that we depend upon all the time that doesn't come to us via science. And I speak today as, as, a, as a Christian and a scientist. And so I believe that when it comes to a theory of everything, Christianity is that ultimate view. Not in the same way that Hawking's meant it, in, 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 in a greater sense. I believe it's the hypothesis that has the greatest explanatory power and scope. And so I believe in a personal creator who designed, created, and upholds the universe around us. It's the reason why when I get up tomorrow and carry on doing science, I can expect the world to be exactly the same rational place it was today. It's the reason I believe that we we find a logical, ordered universe that we can interpret rationally and that we can interrogate with the scientific method. And I also believe that the beauty and the creativity that we see, that the moral dimensions in our lives, that these are reflections of God's character in his creation. You see, science uh, tells us about nature, but it can never tell us if there was something beyond nature. If there existed something beyond nature, how do we know what it was? Not by doing science. We can only study physical things with science. So unless whatever it is that's beyond nature could punch through the fabric of time and space, we would never have any idea what it was. Never any idea if anything was there. We'd only have our speculation. There's many reasons I could give for being a Christian. I don't have time to do it tonight. But ultimately, it's because I believe there's another way of knowing truths about reality. I'm a Christian because I believe that God has done what I just suggested. God has punched through the very fabric of time and space and shown us what he is like revealed himself in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And when I read the claims that he makes, I find them inescapable. As you read the New Testament, you'll see that he claimed to have the authority to stand and speak on God's behalf in his place. The authority to forgive our moral failure, the times when we don't love other people and our creator God as we ought to. And the authority to grant everlasting life. And he didn't just claim to come and speak the truth, he claimed to be the very embodiment of truth itself. Now if that is true, then surely that is the ultimate way to know anything. So let me encourage you, I'm sure if you've been to the the previous event last week or uh, been to Christchurch before, let me encourage you to go away and and look at those accounts of Jesus' life for yourself. Pick up a gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke or John, Read it yourself, talk to the people who brought you. Anyone you've seen at the front tonight would love to chat with you about that. But look at the evidence of Jesus Christ for yourself. See, science reminds us how beautiful 
and ordered the universes. And the problem is that for all of our scientific advances, the world is still a messed up place. So while science and technology can help alleviate suffering, natural disasters, in the end it will never solve the problem of human selfishness. Never solve the problem of the way human beings treat each other. And that's a story that the Bible tells us because we're separated from the God who made us. And so the Christian story tells us how God who made our world became a part of his creation in order to heal it. That he died to ransom and to forgive us, to transform our lives, and to offer that forgiveness to anybody who will take it. Now in the film I uh, mentioned at the start uh, regarding Stephen Hawking's life, The Theory of Everything, there's a scene where you see him writing his famous book. It's called A Brief History of Time. And time has been his main research topic. And interestingly, the book ends with the following quote that you can see on the screen. He says, if we ever discover a complete theory, it will be the ultimate triumph of human reason, for then we would know the mind of God. Now, he's probably using the word God in a metaphorical way here to describe the laws of nature. But at the start of St. John's eyewitness account of Jesus, we read these words that I've also put on the screen. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, for without him nothing was made that has been made. And later on in that chapter... The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Now whether or not I uh, or any of us live to see a grand unified theory in physics, it will never bring the knowledge of God in the way that this quote seems to suggest. What John tells us at the start of his account in those verses, and it sounds a little bit like a tongue twister, doesn't it, when when you read it, but he's saying that the one who created everything the very words of God, the mind of God himself, came and lived among us in the person of Jesus. And so knowing the mind of God is not just a possibility for a cosmologist like Stephen Hawking, it's a possibility for any of us who will reach out and take it. Thanks for listening. Thank you, John, and thank you, Lindsay. What we're going to do now is take a five-minute break. If you need the loo, feel free to go and use them. They're just out this door to the right. There's going to be tea, more tea and coffee, and things to eat at the back. Please don't leave. We'll just have a five-minute break, grab a drink, then come back and take your seat, and John and Lindsay will take your questions. Feel free to text them in or to just stick up a hand when we sit down again. So do please go and grab a drink, and we'll reconvene in a minute. Hopefully that will sustain you. Uh, We'll probably go for about the next 20 minutes of questions. We've got one here, John. I guess this one's for you. How come Galileo was a Christian and had an argument with the church? Uh, Well, I mean, we were just discussing, actually. On a more sort of abstract note, Christians do have arguments with the church. It doesn't mean that they can't be Christians. Uh, In this particular case, uh, he had an argument with the Roman Catholic Church because he believed that... Everything didn't revolve around the Earth, and uh, you know, in the solar system. And the Roman Catholic Church said, "Yes, it does," and he said, "No, it doesn't." And so they, you know, dis- disagreed with him in the strongest possible terms and weren't very nice to him. But that was not because the Roman Catholic Church there 
had a believed this on the basis of scripture. They just believed this because I think they had a commitment to a prior commitment to uh, Aristotle's views or Aristotelian metaphysics, which isn't in the scripture at all. You know, it doesn't say anywhere in the Bible that everything revolves around the earth. And so Galileo was right. I agree with him. He should have had the arguments. And the Roman Catholic Church was wrong, but that didn't stop him having a strong feeling that actually the earth was God's creation and that he was there to look into it and that the language of nature is mathematics and that that is something that God has written to describe reality and he was there to uncover it. Great. Thank you. Unless you have anything to add, Lindsay, on the Galileo front. Great. Okay. Anybody, just wave a hand in the air. If you've got something to ask, got one over here and then if there's any more. Yeah. I'll just repeat that in case anyone didn't catch it. So it seems like a very objective method, the scientific method, because you can try it again and again and again and again and then eventually think, okay, good chance that's true. God doesn't feel like that. It feels like God doesn't make himself very objective to us. It feels like more of a sort of perception thing, subjective perception. Why do you think that is? Well, okay, I, I can, I'll go first, then you can fill in the gaps. Um, it's very interesting that I think within the human power there is a um, possibility to discover God. Um, the Bible is very clear um, about what it says, you know, who Jesus was. Um, also, Christianity is not a, a religion that is a kind of leap in the dark or, or this kind of blind faith. Um, it's based on a historical event and a historical reality. I mean, we're talking about the Big Bang as a kind of one-off event that we can't repeat. So science can't repeat that. Um, Jesus came once for all a couple of thousand years ago, also in history like the Big Bang. Um, But there's documentation that's been tested and, and affirmed, multiple copies of that documentation, multiple eyewitnesses um, to attest to um, what he claimed to be. Then there's the uh, existence of the church that comes in the wake of it, uh, the wake of the resurrection. And, and so there are many ways um, in which we can actually look at that and see that he has actually made himself pretty loud. Um, and also the, the scripture says that he who seeks me will truly find me. I think we like to have our science you know, Christianity debates kind of out there and, and a good fight in the pub without actually looking at the data. And I think if we actually start looking at the data on Jesus, the historical data, um, the fact that, that, that in him so many of the prophecies of the Old Testament actually came true, etc., etc., then you start to get a very um, compelling argument. And I think God wants relationship. He wants faith. He just doesn't want, you know, I know there's chairs at the back, but so what? And he wants pursuit. He wants us to to love him, to care for him in the same way as, you know, guys don't just put themselves on the internet and say, hey, marry me, girl. They, they, They want a relationship with that person. They want pursued. They want pursuit. Um, But the thing is, if you pursue God, you will find him. John. John. Um, more or less what I think too. I think that, yeah, God is interested in a love relationship uh, with us as human beings and that, yeah, were he, were he to write his name in the sky or inscribe his name on every atom, you know, God exists or whatsoever, 
that wouldn't be conducive to a love relationship, I don't think. I think that would force us. Um, I quite like what uh, the American pastor, Tim Keller, says, pastor of a large church in, church in New York. He, he says, it, often it's better to see the various arguments for the existence of God or the truth of Christianity, not so much as, as empirical proof, but as clues, and that God has lifted his creation with clues and also you know, revealed himself in the person of Christ, and we are free to choose one way or the other. And so I think because it is relationship, it's not the kind of thing you can interrogate with science, you, know, you can't measure God in the lab. I don't think you know, that would not be conducive to a love relationship, as I've said, and that's really what God is interested in from us. Um, the other thing that also I think of is that actually don't be so sure that if things were clearer than they already are, that that would make people trust anymore. I mean, all you have to do is, is go away and read the New Testament accounts. Look at the people who saw what Jesus did and heard what he said and didn't believe him anyway. They just tried to kill him. Because actually we have a vested interest in running from God. That's what the, the Christian story says, is that we're all estranged from our creator and we, we don't want God. Um, and that goes a large way, I think, to explaining why so many people resist God or, or indeed don't even properly take a look at the evidence. I'm only here to chair, really, but if I may add, the sort of feels objective thing I think is important in that lots of us have grown up in a culture which tells us those things are objective, but like the two-story house that John was describing, fact, uh, moral values and everything are not objective. But it feels that way to us because we've always lived in that culture. There's plenty of places and times in the world you'd go and you'd say, belief in God isn't objective, and they'd say, what are you talking about? You're crazy. And of course it is. So we just need to be always ready to question our questions as well. And we are not the best culture ever. We mustn't think that we are. Uh, great. Any others? We have a hand. Yeah. I think everyone heard. It was a very well pronounced question. I couldn't repeat it, do it justice, but I think everybody heard. Do you want to start? Uh, well, this could be a, a failure of, of what I've said. I, I, I could have given, I do think there are good arguments you can give the existence of God. I don't think there's a scientific argument, just purely because science studies what is natural and God, by definition, I think is, is, is beyond nature, is the creator of nature and therefore stands outside of it. And so what I was trying to say, I think, is that um, I'm probably not... Uh, clearly enough, is that actually Christianity provides a, a worldview that connects those two stories of the house, that it, it provides a view for the whole man, for scientific knowledge, as well as ethical, moral, aesthetic, and value-based judgments, which we all need to honour and give proper place to, if, if we're not to deny what it truly means to be human. Um, and then what I tried to do at the end of the talk was to say, actually, because science only studies what, what is natural, if... You know, we can't know what a lot of science is given over to, or at least uh, modern things like string theory and multiverse theory are given over to. What, what is it that really stands behind this universe that gave birth to it, it with the initial singularity and the Big Bang? Uh, to me, a lot of that is basically just a replacement for God. You're trying to see, you're trying to get at what isn't natural from the scientific method, which can only study what is natural. So, in my opinion, I don't think you can give a scientific argument for the existence of God. I think you can find clues in the order of the world in the fine tuning of the physical constants and quantities that are needed for this universe to expand and give birth to life in the first place, however you believe that happened. But I do not think you will find a deductive scientific argument that proves the existence of God um, because he is not natural and science only interrogates the natural. But also for, for the reasons uh, that, that we gave to, to the question that came from over here, because God is not interested in being measured in the lab, he's interested in, in a relationship which... Uh, we all know 
you know, you, you can't start a relationship with somebody by measuring them <laughs> or doing an experiment to test whether it's uh, a good idea or not. That would just be crazy. Um, mm. Yeah, it's, I think it's eminently reasonable. Um, you know, uh, God is eminently reasonable, but um, it is hard to test, isn't it? We do the where is God experiment. We are very constrained as humans to our three dimensions and time. We live in a tiny moment. Certainly if you're a geologist and think the earth is old, um, we're hardly here but we're gone and we can't measure that which is beyond, um, beyond us. But, I mean, just to jump in again, the other thing to say is that's not special pleading on the part of Christianity, I don't think, because there are a great deal of things that are very important to us that we can't prove scientifically. You know, the, the belief that you exist or that the past is real or that kind of thing. That's something that science assumes and can't prove. But, it's, you know, I think it's a valid point of view. Um, and so, yeah, I don't want you to feel that's something that, because you can't give a scientific argument, uh, we ought to hold it as, as sort of an inferior position. I think in the end, your ultimate philosophy of reality will not be purely scientific. It can't be, because if you're going to have a philosophy of wherever it came from, you're going to start talking eventually about what came before the natural things, and that will not be a scientific discussion. That will be metaphysics or philosophy. Great, thank you. A um, couple sent um, in, texted in. Can you explain the concept of science can only tell us how, not why again? In my experience, many of the questions we ask of science begin with why, and there are reasonable answers. Um, well, first of all, it's greater minds than mine uh, and more eminent scientists than I'll ever be um, who've said that. Um, the, the thing about how is it's a mechanistic thing. The, the thing is, in our vocabulary, we are very casual with our language. Um, where I come from in Scotland, um, the word why, uh, when we're youngsters, it will often be exchanged for two words, how come, how come you're going to Edinburgh tomorrow morning. That means why, not how. So we can, and as, as uh, Arthur Holmes said, you know, why does that volcano erupt? We do use these words casually. So we will, will often ask the question, why in science? Like I'll ask, I'll ask the question, how come, when I mean why in West Lothian? But actually, the, 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 if you're looking at what does that question mean, um, the how question is a mechanism, um, and the why is to do with reason. What is the purpose? And for purpose and reason, there has to be um, a who behind it all. So you have to go right to the, the origins and the meaning of the word how and the proper meaning of the word why um, rather than the casual everyday usage. And I think that's why we often do say why is because we're using it casually. Have you anything to add on that point? On how why? Um, yes, sorry, I was just reading, reading the question again. I think, yeah, when you're asking why, you're always explaining it in terms of, in a mechanistic sense, aren't you? Why, yes, in, in a causal sense, rather than um, actually asking what stands behind it and what is its ultimate purpose. But, uh, yeah, otherwise, I, I agree with what you've, what you've said. Can I read out this next yes. one? There? It's a sort of long question for John. 
How do you reason the Big Bang fits with the creator theory, and how does that play out in your work with CERN? Uh, okay, that's one, and then this one's a bit more complicated. How do you balance what we have been told and what we aren't meant to know in the pursuit of understanding? How do we approach understanding the mind of God, as you mentioned at the end? So do you want to start with the CERN question in the Big Bang? How do you fit that with belief in God? Okay. Uh, so my own personal view at the moment is that the universe is very, very old, uh, and that it, that it began with the Big Bang about 14 billion years ago. Um, now, how do I reconcile that with being Christian? Or? Yeah, with the creator theory. Which well, quite, quite simply say. that I believe that... Uh, nothing can't go bang and that, that actually God was the initiator of that sequence. Um, it's interesting, I know it's a, it's a poetic description, but in the Psalms it talks about God stretching out the heavens and, and that almost seems to me a poetic description of what happened at the very start of time when everything expanded out very, very rapidly. Uh, and indeed, um, when we look around today, we see everything moving away from us uh, at a very, very great speed. And so that seems, I think there's plenty of good evidence for the Big Bang. I don't see why that would contradict uh, anything in, in, in the creation story. I think they're perfectly consistent, in my opinion. Uh, happy to talk with whoever asked the question about that afterwards. The second question was second about is, knowing and... Yeah, so this is more sort of philosophical question, really. How do you balance what we have been told and what we aren't meant to know? How do we approach understanding the mind of God, which you sort of mentioned at the end? Uh, the mind of God, well, I'll answer first. What I was, what I was trying to say is that uh, Jesus comes into the natural world from outside of it, becomes a part of it, and shows us who God really is. He claims he, to have the authority to stand and speak in God's place. And I think one of the things that John chapter 1 is saying is that the very word of God is, you know, very essence, as it were, and that, that was a sort of saying was like the mind of God comes into our universe to show us what God is like and to heal this broken world. So I think, do you want to know what the mind of God is like? I hope the answer is yes. Then go and investigate the life of Jesus, look at the claims he made, look at his life, death, death and re resurrection, which are uh, supposed to be authenticating those claims that he made. And the question in the middle, how do you balance knowing what you can find out with what you can't find out? I'm not quite sure what that question means. I think you, if you know what you think the limits of science are, then you, you, you work within those limits. You're forced to, of course. Um, of course, there may be some things we never know. I mean, you see this even in uh, things like quantum theory. There's some things that we cannot know. We literally cannot measure them because if we do measure them, we force them to a certain value so we can never know what they would have been before we measured them. Um, I, yes, I think you just, you just try to investigate the natural things with the scientific method for those things that, that aren't open to that. As I say, there's other ways of knowing things, moral truths, values, aesthetic judgments, and there's some things that, that we won't know. That, and I think actually being a Christian uh, is quite reassuring in that sense because you know that there is a mind that does know those things and what we are meant to find out, it, it is possible to know. Great. Any more from the floor? Yeah. Yeah, I think people heard, yeah. So yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Um, oh, where do I start with you, your comment? Early on, I tried to share that the, the prehistory, the early parts of Genesis, we have to be a lot more humble in our interpretation of them. Um, Martin Luther, the great reformer, 
said that he didn't let anybody near Genesis chapter 1 until they were at least 30 years old. And that was before television, you know, they had a lot of time to study. Um, and John Calvin, who was a great reformer, said basically that he who would um, study uh, astronomy or other recondite arts, sciences in the old speak, should go elsewhere. And we would be strongly into to both these guys in, in our denomination. Um, so some people um, consider that when the word day in Genesis chapter 1 means a literal 24 hours um, and that the earth is actually quite young and, and there's no place for evolution, um, that is not the, the position that I would hold, and John just certainly said he believes in an ancient universe. Um, the, the thing is, I don't believe that Genesis 1 says that we need to, to interpret it that way at all. In the same way as ancient rocks, we have to be humble about ancient texts. There are all sorts of structures in Genesis 1. It's parallelisms, ancient Hebrew writing, very different the way you and I write. Um, and actually, logically, you know, the, the 24 hours cannot exist until the third day of um, creation in the Genesis 1 account. So, you know, I, I wouldn't go for the, the short end. But some people have that sort of um, view, which I would say is a putting a scientific modernist approach onto the text of Genesis chapter 1. But, you know, I respect them as earnest Christians. Maybe I think they're wrong there. But they're still earnest Christians who love Jesus. That's probably why they have that strong point. So that was your, your just to address that. Um, but I totally, yeah, I totally agree with you. I think, of course, they need to be married together. Um, you know, J Jesus actually says, in him all things hold together. That's just a madly amazing statement. Um, how can this man say such a bizarre thing? He's a guy. He's a man. And yet he says something as outlandish as that. Um, there's lots of reasons why we believe Jesus. But the ultimate reason that we believe this man, who made, made very many claims about his own God, uh, godness, um, is the fact that he broke through. I, I loved your, your word about breaking through the limitations of our three dimensions in time effectively. He broke through the natural laws in, in the resurrection um, and, and came, came to life again. And that's really the cornerstone. Um, and he doesn't just help. Looking at science is wonderful. We're both scientists and we discover so many things. Um, but our hearts are crying. But we want to know love. But we want to know forgiveness. But we want to relate to each other and not just make enemies. Um, and an atheist very close to me who gave me grief for 30 years at the end of his life, he knew that he needed forgiveness. An atheist. And the only place that I know on this planet that can offer that ultimate forgiveness is the person of Jesus Christ. That's what he came to do, to forgive us, to restore our relationship with God. So I don't know your name. I'd love to know it. But yes, yes, there should be so much more. Thank you. John, have you got anything to add on that? Just a short comment. I mean, I actually think that's quite disrespectful to not turn up to the lectures. I mean, I could be wrong, but I, I mean, of course, students these days are paying customers, aren't they? So they're free to go to anything they want to. But, you know, I think if you're going to have the debate, no doubt those people have quite strong opinions, and that's why they stayed away. But I think that 
you forfeit the right to have a strong opinion on this topic if you're not willing to listen to, to the, other, the other point of view. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that uh, if that point of view is valid, it may well be, it's not my opinion, then it should stand up to criticism and it should stand up to the opposing point of view. And so uh, I would not at all be in favour of telling anybody to stay away from, from, from classes on evolutionary biology or paleontology or anything like that. Go, listen to what's said. Be scientific, examine the evidence, and come to your own conclusion. Great. Uh, it's nine o'clock, so I think we'd better stop, even though we had someone, I think, had texted in a couple of questions. So if that was you and you're uh, sad you didn't get them answered, John and Lindsay would be very happy to chat afterwards. I just want to say a couple of things um, as we finish. Um, a few bits of paper to wave. The first one is this red and white contact form. We as a church put on events like this and all sorts of things all the time. And we send out a weekly email, which uh, even if you read it, uh, receive it, you don't have to read it. So hopefully it won't bother you too much. But that just means we can keep in touch with you about different things we're doing. It's, uh, we only send you the information we ask for. you ask for. We won't pass your info to anybody else. And just out at the welcome table out there, there's lots of those. If you want to fill them in, find out other things that we are doing. Uh, this series, Big Issues, we're doing two in February. So this is the second one of those. And then two in March. Uh, the 12th of March is the latest one. That's a month from today. And we're looking at the whole issue of sexuality, which is an extremely vexed issue when it comes to the Christian faith. And a guy who would self-describe as a gay Christian is going to come and tell us a little bit of his story and how he puts those two things together. So you might be interested in that. The 5th of March, which is the week before that, we're doing something called People's Choice, which is basically we've put a survey out there saying, what is your barrier to faith? What would you like us to talk about and engage with. And basically at the moment I'm getting a lot of questions about Donald Trump. So um, I'm really happy to address that, but if there's something else you think is more pressing, uh, again, you could just fill in the uh, form at the welcome table. Um, there's a sheet there for you to fill in your suggestions. Please take that flyer with you and you'll know everything that's happening. And finally, just to say two things. Maybe you uh, are at the end of tonight ready to say, okay, not convinced about Christianity, but I'm willing to consider that might be the sort of way to answer these bigger questions that science doesn't answer. And there's two ways I want to encourage you to do that. One is John has mentioned the books in the Bible called the Gospels, which are just accounts of Jesus' life by people who saw him. And we've got lots of those. They're black with this little blue, I don't know what it is in the front, cloud or something, a spray of paint on the front. Um, they're free. Please take one away and have a read of it. No one's going to check up whether you've read it or anything. They're just on that little uh, counter just there beside the door. So take one of those. And there's plenty on the table out there as well. And finally, we run a thing that we call Christianity Explored, which is very easy to understand because it's exactly what it says on the tin. Um, that is a chance for you to not just read a bit of a gospel by yourself, but get together with other people who are also searching and asking questions we look at a little bit of Mark's gospel, which is an account of Jesus' life. We eat food together and we talk about it. Nobody has to sing or pray or is forced to say what they think or um, is uh, forced to become a Christian or anything like that. As it should be clear tonight, we're not in favor of forced conversions. So um, sorry, I shouldn't have even mentioned that, should I? S shut up. Uh, stop talking. Anyway, I just want to warmly invite you to Christianity Explored. It starts next Sunday evening. And it's, an, it's in someone's home, but it's an environment very much like this where something's put out on the table and everybody gets to ask questions and talk about it. 
and you get a nice meal and to meet some nice people as well. Please pick up those orange flyers on the way out. There's lots of those if you want to know about that. And if you can just drop an email to the email address there, if you'd like to come, we'll make sure there's food for you. Thank you very much for coming. And could we just thank John and Lindsay for speaking to us. (laughs) 